Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. Dead Soxy is excited to announce an incredible fall score. Get into the sock game with the 2022 score sale. At the conclusion of Saturday's game between the Irish and the Rebels, however many points Notre Dame scores, Dead Soxy will match that number as a percentage discount. If the Irish post 38 points on UNLV, the promo code will activate for 38% off. 50 points, no problem, 50% off. And I know what you're thinking, what if Notre Dame only scores 14 points again? Well, Dead Soxy has you covered for any offensive ineptitude. The promo will start at 35% regardless if the score is lower than that and will be capped at 60% off. This score sale will run from the conclusion of Saturday's game up until kickoff of the Syracuse game on Saturday, October 29th. Load up on your favorite socks and score this incredible offer. So I would take some time this week to scope out the options, figure out which socks you want to buy, and then wait till after the UNLV game and then pounce on this deal. Visit deadsoxy.com and use the promo code LUCKY at checkout to receive the score sale percentage off all orders. And as always, stay soxy. Things are getting dreary in South Bend, and not just because there is snow in the forecast. Notre Dame slipped back into fraudulent mode Saturday in an unexpected 16-14 to loss to Stanford. The answers to Notre Dame's issues that seem to be established in previous weeks are questions once again. And now the Irish are staring at a tough road to finish the season above 500. While Notre Dame's season has been pretty hard to watch, it's unfolded at the same time. Uh, the rest of the college football has been pretty interesting with its fair share of surprises and disappointments. So we reached out to Dennis Dodd, national college football writer for CBS Sports, to bring a national perspective on this week's podcast. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for, thanks for having me, you guys. You, you want me to save the Notre Dame season, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all on you. It's all on you, Dennis. Just to I'll, start, I'll do my best. What, what has been your biggest takeaway from, from Notre Dame's 3-3 three and three start to the season? Well, I thought they had turned things around. I'm, you know, we talked about the beginning ad nauseum, but the the Stanford thing was just really surprising. Where I, I know Tanner McKee is a pro prospect, but even he wasn't, you know, lighting it up in the game. I, he outplayed uh, Drew Pine, but uh, you know, against a defense that was more than uh, accommodating coming into this game, Notre Dame couldn't do anything. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. There were turnovers, obviously, but um, look. Uh, you know, Notre Dame's coach, David Shaw, is supposedly in trouble because what he does doesn't exactly fit college football right now. You know, he, he just likes to pound the ball and, and mass, you know, dominate people with the offensive line where you've got Tennessee running plays every, you know, uh, 3.95 plays per minute. That's more where college football is going. So I, I don't understand it. that. That's in the question mark category. Dennis. You know, we had a lot of people when when we have these games with the Marshall game and then this game, you have a lot of people kind of going back and relitigating whether Marcus should have been hired. And yeah, a lot of people kind of seeing. But but let me say this. What really what realistically you've covered a lot of first year coaches mm -hmm. and, and we've seen guys like uh, what was the guy at Miami that was uh, won the national championship his first year? Um, and oh, then, uh, yeah. Um is it Larry? Yeah, Larry Coker. Coker. So so what really can we tell about the future 
from that first year? I mean, is it defining or do we need to just kind of cherry pick certain things from that first year to see what this might turn into? Yeah, I just I just think Larry Coker is an extreme example because he came in and inherited maybe the best recruiting class um, ever uh, coming in there. And in one, you know, I, I think you or I could have coached that team and won a national championship in 02 and then just didn't live up to the standard. Well, that was going that turned out to be um, a habit for Miami and they're still chasing that dragon. But I, I in general, I just think it's too early to form any opinions. Um, you can have an opinion, but to form any solid projections of what this is going to be, especially after half a season. Yeah. Are, are Marshall and Stanford surprising? Was the 0-2 start surprising? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't have your quarterback, but your starting quarterback. Um, so it, everything sounds like excuses when you're at this stage, but I, I think it's you know incredibly early to form an opinion. Now you've got not a bad example, but Sonny Dykes, not a first year coach, but undefeated with somebody else's players with Gary Patterson's players at, uh, at TCU, Josh Heupel in his second year, 21 months after being hired for an absolute, absolute mess at Tennessee, they're still under NCAA investigation, but winning with Jeremy Pruitt's players. So it's, it's just different from place to place. And I think you've got people don't want to hear this, but you've got to give it time. And you, it's especially six games isn't a way to, you know, can't form an opinion yet. Dennis, as we give it time, what, what are the signs that we should look for to see if Marcus Freeman is, is turning the corner as a head coach? Um, game management. Uh, look, you can only, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken bleep all the time. Um, <laughs> but you know, your roster is what your roster is. Uh, they faced a tough stretch here. UNLV is better at Syracuse, which looked like a, a W, at, you know, in the season. Syracuse is one of only eight teams now, nine teams that are undefeated. Clemson speaks for itself at Navy with that offense. Um, BC looks winnable. And then at USC, uh, you know, I, I just think progress on Saturday. Um, they're going to recruit how they're going to recruit. And if they, you know, if they look competent, or getting outplayed, then you can live with that. But um, the way the season has started has been tough. So it's, I think it's just, you got to talk in generalities. You know, is Drew Pine even going to be the quarterback? You know, is Ty Buckner going to going to be back? He's been injury prone, frankly. So you don't, you don't know what you have. So, you know, you just have to go from there. Dennis, when you've seen guys first year coaches take off and then have some sustained su success let's take ryan day since yeah they faced each other what did ryan day do right i mean obviously he had a great roster but he's not urban meyer i no. mean he he was a lot of people outside of the big 10 didn't really know who ryan day was and what has he lost four games in four years maybe yeah he lost his first big 10 game last year to uh to michigan so um, what, what, uh, other than having a great roster, I mean, he's still recruiting at a high level. So yeah. what is he doing? Right. What, what decisions did he make? Why, why was that such a great hire? Well, he was, he, I think he was there a year before he got elevated when uh, urban Meyer was suspended. He had been recommended to urban Meyer to be the quarterback's coach by chip Kelly and chip Kelly had coached. Uh, they'd both gone to the same school, New Hampshire, and Chip Kelly had coached 
um, Ryan Day as a quarterback there. And they were very close. They remain close to this day. In fact, Chip, uh, Chip Kelly found out about the USC-UCLA thing while he was on the golf course with Ryan Day this summer. So he inherited, yeah, he inherited a roster, but there was nothing on his resume that would lead you to believe he'd be this wildly successful head coach. He was an assistant in the NFL, very bright guy, comes in and goes three and oh with urban on suspension in game three they walk into uh it was the the jerry dome tcu very a very good tcu team and win that game and come back in the second half and that i think that that i asked gene smith i said what what is it about this guy that that told you that he was going to be ready and he just said he looked the part he was 39 years old he had his stuff together um he immediately bonded with the players and i think what you said is is key he, he just kept recruiting at a high level it, Ohio State's Ohio State, but at that point in their uh, in their growth, that could have gone sideways uh, with a, a first year coach. So you know, I, I can't explain that. I can't explain why one hits and one doesn't in the short term. And now Ryan Day's going on the long term. Right. So the my follow up to that is, do you think it's easier, at least from the outside looking in, for an offensive coach to to do this and? and both from a perception and reality standpoint, is it easier since you know the quarterback and you know the offense and you can talk about the team a little bit more? Sometimes when we talk about Marcus, talking a lot of generalities about the offense because he's really not that involved yet with the offense. Yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't call the defensive plays. I don't think right. He does not. Yeah, I I go back to uh, Brent Venables is doing that at Oklahoma. Gary Patterson is do did that at uh at tcu and was wildly successful one won a rose bowl doing that i think that's really really hard now again marcus freeman is not doing that brent venables is at oklahoma with uh i don't know you know uneven success right now uh but it, i don't know is it better to in general the the industry tells you that they're all going almost all uh, ad's are going for offensive coaches because that's what the game is these days you saw tennessee saturday Tennessee doesn't win that game unless, you know, they're, they're all in because they can't, their secondary is terrible. Uh, so is <laughs> Alabama's, but that's another discussion. And, and at least Tennessee knows what they are. They were bringing on every passing down. And I, I saw the whole game. I was there. I, I didn't miss one snap on every passing down. They brought five or six guys. Uh, they were going to, they're going to try to get Bryce Young off his mark rather than sit back and let him pick them apart. Now he threw for, 400 plus yards and was great, but that was their best way to win. And they did by three at the gun, but mm -hmm. you know, in that sense, it worked as a defensive coach, you know, I don't know. I, I think that's just the sexy thing right now to hire an offensive coach. Um, and we can have the discussion about, you know, Notre Dame being in that time frame and having to do something quickly, but um, in answer to your question, yeah, most, most ADs overwhelmingly are hiring offensive coaches. Dennis, sticking with the offense, Tommy Reese, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, has been beaten up fairly or unfairly yeah. from his going all the way back to his time as a quarterback at Notre Dame yeah. um, and now, now as the offensive coordinator. What is your perspective on him as an offensive coordinator and the challenges he's facing um, with this Notre Dame offense? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the pieces are there right now. I don't know for sure. I just know that Brian Kelly would have sold his soul for Tommy Reese and wanted him desperately at LSU. So I'll just leave that there for, you know, whatever that means. Um, yeah, uh, you can't, 
you can only the ceiling is very low when you don't have the horses and that seems like again without your quarterback um you, you need a fire starter these days if you if you don't have a quarterback if you have a quarterback you have a chance um again i, I use the example of tennessee and ohio state's one of five teams that hasn't faced in fbs that hasn't faced a ranked team this year um but they've got cj stroud and if everything else goes bad, C.J. Stroud can bail him out. Bryce Young, too. He he won the Texas game. Alabama was outplayed that day. But in the fourth quarter, he completed whatever it was, 15 out of 19 for a touchdown, and they win the game. So if you've got that fire starter type, then you can mask a lot of things. Um, LSU in 2019, I, went, I love this story. I went back and, and researched it. It was really, really hard going back to 1936. They had the worst defense of any national champion in history in the wire service era and went 15 and 0. So that ought to tell you the worth of a quarterback. And, and that was Joe Burrow, who wasn't good enough at Ohio State or couldn't crack through, but found his footing at Ohio State. So it sounds like I'm laying it all at the feet of uh, Drew Pine, but that, you know, that helps um, a lot. So um, a lot of comments that I get from people has to do with they look at Alabama and they see all the analysts on their roster. Yeah. And a lot of times big names, guys that are kind of uh, trying to recycle themselves into better jobs and so forth. And, and Nick Saban seems to say, okay, come, come here. You got a home here and so forth. Notre Dame has some analysts. Most of them are pretty young. Um, and I'm wondering, do you think that, maybe Notre Dame needs to borrow a page from the Alabama book and maybe have, especially with a young head coach, maybe have more of those kind of guys for Marcus to have as resources, or maybe is it too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing? Yeah. Well, there's two, two pieces to that. You can have as many um, analysts uh, as you want. In fact, I think in the, in the new NCAA, they're just going to say whatever you can afford, you can have. So if Notre right. Dame, Notre Dame's going to have as many analysts as it wants uh, in the future. A couple of things. There's that and the fact that, okay, what, what do you use them for? Do you listen to them? What is their input? What is their input on game day? They can't be on the sidelines. They can't recruit. Right. Um, you know, and Sa Saban has done that to perfection. He takes these fallen head coaches and they can only earn, I think, $35,000. Well, they're making so much from their buyouts, it doesn't matter. And they can rebuild their careers. <laughs> he he obviously listens to them. There's input. Um, Steve Sarkeesian is a good example. You know, he just built himself back up through through that, became the offensive coordinator and then head coach at Texas. So, and look at some schools, the philosophy is not to have a lot of analysts. I think a lot of coaches would like to have 35 analysts uh, or whatever Alabama has, but you know, it just, it becomes at some point unmanageable and probably unaffordable. Um, so, you know, an AD or a president, whoever might step in and go, eh, you know, we really don't need that much, but uh, I think that goes from school to school and in the industrial college football complex, bigger is better. So, and you're, you're seeing that from school to school and they're not, you know, this Eric, we, sometimes we don't even know who they are, how they yeah. come and go we can't interview them um you know for the most part but they're there to improve the team and i i think it just becomes a part of yeah there, there can be too many cooks in the kitchen what does the individual coach take from them 
or not on a, on a weekly basis. I, I don't have the answer to that. Dennis, I, I think there's certain small, I would say small segments of the Notre Dame fan base who maybe were skeptical of Marcus Freeman going into yeah. the season. Now they feel like, see, I told you I was right. Yeah. Um, this, this is predictable. I, my viewpoint is like none of us have any idea which coach is going to be successful. What you as a national writer, what, what is your perspective? Is there, do you have things that you identify as like, this is a reason guys will be a good head coach or are you as, as clueless as I am? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 after Scott Frost, I had, I just throw my arms up. If there was ever a slam dunk hire, that was it. Uh, Native son undefeated as a head coach, had head coaching experience, coordinator experience, won a national championship at Notre Dame had, you know, ran a modern offense and just completely fell on his face. Didn't know how to run a program. Um, you know, there are other guys that came out of no, nowhere and were highly successful. So I, I don't know what the formula is right now. It's, you know, I don't want to say the CEO coach, because you've got to be, you've got to be involved. But like, I, I did a story on Deion Sanders last week and like, he's, he's going to get a power five job. My only question was, is he ready? And does he want one? And you saw on 60 minutes, he basically said, yeah, I'd have to listen. And so what has he done? And I don't know the answer to that. He's, he's taken, he's raised the visibility of an HBCU. He's recruited at a high level, taking, you know, top five guys in FBS. Well, that's because he's Deion Sanders, but he's done something. And look, that's half the battle sometimes. Uh, Bobby Bowden was the original CEO coach. You know, he would, he would wander over to the defense and, you know, sometimes, but he was seen as a guy who was a rah-rah guy who could assemble a roster. And, and sometimes that's enough. But in this day and age, it just seems you need to be more. You need to be that guy who has his hand in everything, has, hires the right analyst, you know, gets, is on the cutting edge of recruiting. And, and, and NIL, I mean, Paul Chris lost his job winning 72% of his games in part because he didn't embrace NIL and graphics and stuff like that. Uh, I guess the offense had become stale. I don't know. But um, again, if a guy like him or Scott Frost can't make it, I, I don't know what, what the answer is these days. And again, I bring up Brent Venables, who who waited this long for the perfect job <laughs> and now is struggling at Oklahoma. One of the things that I try to do in, in a column for Monday was – you know, hypothetically, what would their record be if Brian Kelly was still here? Yeah. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are and how you think he's doing at LSU. I mean, they've, they, they're kind of been up and down, you yeah. know, where you think, oh boy, this is, this is going to go wrong. And then they go to Florida and pull a big game out there. I know they got a lot of gristle coming up in that schedule with, I think Ole Miss, Alabama, and Arkansas all in a row coming up. Yeah. No, it was they, – they won a shootout. Um, you know, and I think they were like a 7-5, and 8-4 and four team this year when you, when you looked at them. And I didn't think much of Jaden Daniels at all. I, I thought he was a guy that would be ragdolled in, uh, in the SEC. But not only did he get the job, he, he's kept it and done some good things. Um, you know, they lost Max Johnson who went to – uh, Texas A&M and then got hurt so they didn't and he threw 27 touchdowns last year and transferred so you know I don't know what there is about that yeah I, may, I guess maybe the record would be better because of the continuity again you've got a first year guy who's never done this before and has been on campus a year so yeah I, I guess it would be better but I, I think that I think that Brian Kelly 
I, I visited him in the off season and he completely got it. You know what this was that he look, it's the sec it's tougher here. Um, but there's better access to the playoff. I think that was the message that got through in, in the, in the expanded playoff, it's going to be, you can go nine and three and 10 and two in the sec and still make it. Okay. That won't, but what he didn't say and what, he had to understand is that won't cut it at LSU. 10 and two won't cut it at LSU, even in a year like this, which was down, um, you know, and they've had some tough, some tough roads so far this year. The Florida state thing was mismanaged. It looked like in the, in the beginning with the turnovers and, and what have you, but you're right. Ole Miss, Alabama at Arkansas and then at A&M to finish the season. It's, it, it is unforgiving. And I think there's a lesson there, not only, for Brian Kelly, but for the likes of Texas and Oklahoma for transitioning in a couple of years mm -hmm. to that league, they're not going to be the big dogs um, in that yeah. league. They, you know, when they have league meetings, they're going, Oh, uh, not enough chairs. You can just stand against the wall. You know, it's Oklahoma and Texas, they're <laughs> going to be the fourth or fifth best programs in that league. So it shows you how tough it is. And I, I think Brian Kelly knew that, but what he didn't understand is 10 and two, isn't going to cut it at LSU rightly or wrongly. They think they're better. I know that you had a chance to talk to Marcus at one point and something he said yesterday struck me. Mm -hmm. um, it took me aback a little bit. He, toward the end of his press conference yesterday, he mentioned that he, he appreciates what Brian Kelly did, but he had to do things his own way. And so he basically was suggesting this was a rebuild of sorts in terms of putting a program together. And it surprised me that, I mean, when I go back and look at all the signs, he does do almost everything different. But it mm -hmm. surprised me that you wouldn't take a guy that you work with for a year, you wouldn't say, mm -hmm. well, I like this, I'm going to keep this aspect. I'm going to build off this. He pretty much tore it down and, and build it. I, I, I'm, I'm curious if you got that impression when you talked <laughs> to him before the season, that that was the direction he was going in and what you think of that concept that you would completely turn the page on somebody like Brian Kelly. Yeah. If that's the case, then that's his prerogative. Um, yeah. And, and Jack had to know that when he hired him, I, you know, he had to have some idea that that was going to happen. Um, as far, yeah. In the summer is more like I was following him. He had had a stop. I went the caravan stops in St. Louis. I just wanted to see kind of get an idea of him and how he was being accepted and it was more like you know the rah-rah new Notre Dame coach um didn't didn't really get into to much about what you're talking about right. um, just that just that at that point again he seemed to be the right guy he hadn't coached a game which you know we were going to see what happened but you know had done everything right to that point Dennis it, I'm curious do you think there is a team in college football that had expectations going into this season that has had a more disappointing start to the season than Notre Dame? I have to think about that one. Um, you know, Texas was right there, but it, I think they've got a shot at winning the big 12. Um, just, just the way they started out when they lost their quarterback. Right. Now, when you were just, is there no, I, you know, I guess the, the losses to Stanford and Marshall stand out. Um, I'll I'll reserve judgment. I, I'd have to go down the list. I'm not sure. Off the top of my head, the two that I think are competing are AM to a certain extent, unless yeah. they get it back. And then uh maybe Oklahoma just because of how about their defense? That's good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oklahoma. And, and the reason we know this is there's a Notre Dame's probably top recruit in its class has been flirting with those two schools oh, wow. the whole time. So we've been monitoring how they've been doing. Yeah, A&M, I never had A&M top five. A lot of people did. Some of them had them in top four in the playoff. I never saw that because they were. this was going to be a gap year for them with that recruiting class. Best ever, remember? Best recruiting class yeah. ever. And I asked Jimbo Fisher before the season, how many of the guys do you have to play? And he said, we kind of have to play all of them or else they'll transfer in some in some fashion. Um just so you keep him happy. And he was right. Uh, the the five-star quarterback, Connor Wegman, and they've had problems, extreme problems at quarterback, has not seen a, a snap. And I thought he might have played by now just to keep him happy because you can play him four games and he retains eligibility. Get him some snaps. But I don't think he has at all. Um, Oklahoma, the defensive breakdown has been unbelievable by with a guy who was the best coordinator in the country. And now I, I noticed there, uh, Brett Venables is trying to, you know, oh, we didn't have much to work with. And so, they do, you know, they're ripping Lincoln Riley. They're kind of going that route, which I guess is predictable when you go through something like this. Dennis, I am I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Alabama. I, I'm curious what your perspective is there. I think people are wondering, well, should we have seen this coming with the way that some of the games have gone earlier this season? Is there reason for concern in Alabama or is this just sort of a blip on, uh, yeah. on the radar? I, I think there's reason for concern, but when will it show up? In other words, they're good enough to win these games, the rest of their games, until they play Georgia in the SEC championship game. You know, that, was a, that wasn't a division loss. Um, and look, they, they had, um, they had uh, you know, they were up, what, 49-42 with five minutes to go on a scoop and score and look like, up oh, same old Tennessee, you know. Um, but give Tennessee credit. They scored the last 10, including, you know, getting down with 15 seconds to go to get in the in range for the field goal and won the game. Alabama's secondary is not good. It wasn't good against Texas. Um, now they played a backup quarterback half the game, but they were really exposed in, uh, against, against Hendon Hooker and Jalen Hyatt looked like he could do whatever he wanted. How's this for a line? Eight targets. Six catches, five of them for touchdowns, 207 wow. yards. So that tells me anytime he anytime he wanted to blow off the line and beat a corner, he could. So they've got problems. I mean, I think there was clock management questions at the end, not issues, but maybe you, something you could question where, you know, Nick could have called a timeout or, or could have run the ball in the last possession to, to bleed Tennessee out. I'm so, trying to think off the top of my head if Notre Dame's entire receiving core has five touchdowns for the season. Yeah, yeah. Because most of their so. TVs go to Michael Mayer, the tight end. And they, they, look, they, they, look, they, they were without Bryce Young, um, you know, but got him back. And then they've had, look, they've had problems in their last five games on the road. Go back and look. They've had problems, and they've lost now, what, two or three of them, I think. My last one for you, Dennis, is we've really – from a national standpoint, enjoyed the season. There's been some great games, yeah. some great storylines. And and we've kind of forgotten about the realignment stuff that may still be yet to come. Yeah. How far are we away from, do you think, from those conversations moving back to the front burner and there being more change in college football that we got? Oh, I think I think they're ongoing. I think Kevin Warner wants to rule the world. And he's still trying to convince his presidents to that he can get a number 
from Amazon or Apple that will justify um, making that like a side project. We're going to get Cal, Stanford, Washington, and um, Oregon to go uh, for much less than what the 16 teams in the league are getting now or will get with the addition of uh, USC and UCLA. It sounds kind of complicated, but then that would, the the TVs are against it because that would in essence um, collapse the Pac-12. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to see that, but if that happens, then the Big 12, I'm convinced, would come in and get uh, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and Arizona State, and there'd be nothing left of the Pac-12. So it's ongoing. And I think it's, I've already written this, but I think it's in the laps of the Big 10 presidents right now. If they say no to this little side project, then that's it uh, for the Big 10 for now. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen, because I think the Pac-12, if it sticks around, is going to sign sort of a skinny deal for five, you know, five years or something like that. So at any point, Kevin Warren could swoop in there and convince them to go. But that's where it is right now. It's and nothing, nothing with Notre Dame. I, I don't hear anything. Uh, Jack Swarbrick is kind of doesn't want to be the guy, the AD when Notre Dame went to a conference. So I don't think that's going to happen. Well, all right, Dennis, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and uh, safe travels the rest of the season for you. All right. Thanks so much, guys. As a reminder, the Inside Indie Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. They have the patented technology with the no-slip guarantee, the premium product made from bamboo for that luxury field. And now there is a navy and gold collection, which reflects your favorite team and design and color. I know that not a lot of people wanted to be in blue and gold last week, but Notre Dame's going to turn this around. So you want to have the right socks when they do. And what's really cool is Dead Soxy is having a fall score sale. So here's how it works. At the conclusion of Saturday's game between the Irish and the Rebels, how many points Notre Dame scores, Dead Soxy will match that number as a percentage discount. Now you're going, oh my goodness. They scored 14 points last week. 14% discount is okay. <laughs> and what Dead Soxy is doing, they understand so that the promo is going to start at 35%. So that's going to be the minimum. And it'll cap off at 60%. So anywhere between 35 and 60%, depending on what Notre Dame scores against the Rebels on Saturday, will be the discount. That score sale is going to run all the way through kickoff of the Syracuse game on Saturday, October 29th. So you have some time to kind of look through the collections and see what uh, fits you, what you like. Um, and you have to use the promo code LUCKY at checkout to get the percentage off on all orders. So that's deadsoxy.com. Go to the colorways tab and then look for the navy and gold collection. Use promo code LUCKY to get the scoreboard discount. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185.
You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First question we have is from MS Domer on the Insider Lounge, and it's a bit of a long one here, so bear with me. I am perplexed by Coach Freeman's comments in the post-game press conference. Not so much his use of the word execution 20 plus times as much as him stating that he wants to run the as much as he as much as stating that he wants to run the ball more. It appeared to me that for the vast majority of our offensive snaps, Stanford was stacking the box. All defenders were within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage and the DBs were on top of the wide receivers. It also appeared that Pine had open receivers down the field and or one-on-one matchups with the receivers, which one would expect with stacking the line of scrimmage. Yet almost all throws were 0-10 to 10 yards from the line of scrimmage. My questions are, why does Drew Pine almost always take a short drop and look to the underneath routes? It does not matter if it is 3rd and 15. He is likely going to throw at 5 yards. And number 2, why does Coach Freeman want to run in his stacked boxes rather than stretch the field and loosen up the defense? Does this all boil down to a lack of confidence by the staff in Pine's ability? Okay. In terms of almost always and and those tendencies and what you saw ms domer i'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that and answer your question in that context tyler reviewed the game he may have a little bit different talk on that i think first of all um there's a in terms of what drew pine does there's a comfort zone both for him and tommy reese as a play caller in terms of what he does best now did that match what Stanford was showing in looks. Um, I think we have to give uh, Reese a, a little credit there and that they did have some downfield throws. Uh, in particular, there was one where Tobias Merriweather, before he had his touchdown, had a couple steps on uh, one-on-one coverage, and that should have been a touchdown. Um, a really good quarterback drops that in the bucket. And then there was one with Braden Lindsay in the end zone. I'm not sure that I've seen a guy that wide open get missed that much. I mean, it it felt like it was 10 or 12 yards from Braden Lindsay, and and that was a sure touchdown too. So I do think that they did try to do that. Um, why would Marcus run into a loaded box? I know that Marcus wants to establish the run. I think he looks and sees that there are three teams in the FBS that play run defense worse than Stanford and thought even in a loaded box, Notre Dame was going to get some favorable matchups and they want to be balanced in their approach. And again, maybe instead of establishing the run to open up the pass, maybe there are some games where you need to do that in a reverse order, open up uh, with the pass and, uh, uh, then then that'll open your run game up but he wants to be balanced and i i don't think that that's a bad thing i just think boy there were a lot of things about the game plan about how the game plan played out and drew pine being way off his game in terms of accuracy that all kind of conspired to add up to 14 points against a really bad defense the worst defense notre dame will see the rest of the season yeah i i um I'm not 100% sure which comments um, MS Domer is talking about post-game. I think it may have been the question that I asked Marcus in a follow-up about, like, don't you need to – are you learning how to make in-game adjustment as a, as a coach? And he sort of said, well, I'm not exactly, like, telling these guys what to do. I'm not telling Tommy Reeser 
Al Golden what to do all the time. And he said, my advice to Tommy usually is run the ball more. So I don't know if that was said more, if that was said sort of flippantly and not necessarily like, I, I don't know if Marcus is like, I don't care how many people are in the box. We need to run the football. I'm not sure that that's exactly his mindset, um, but it, it definitely, he he definitely believes that running should be the team's strength. And he, that's the type of football team that he wants to lead. Um, and he, I think he believes that that's the type of football team that Notre Dame needs to be, to be its best. Um, both sort of from a big picture standpoint, like long-term and, but also um, based on the personnel that Notre Dame has currently. Um, so I, I disagree with the idea that they should continue to run into stack boxes. I don't, I think they'd have to be smarter than that and they have to, um, put the offense in positions to be successful. Um, so I understand the concern there that MS Domers is expressing in terms of Drew Pine taking the short drop and looking at underneath routes. I, I, I agree with you. Comfort was one of the words I had written down. I think that's what he's most comfortable doing. Um, and that's where Michael Mayer typically is. Um, so those two things sort of align with what Drew Pine's um, priority is. I, I, now that's probably not the best thing for the offense all the time. It certainly wasn't a problem against BYU, but it was a problem against Stanford. So Notre Dame has to figure out, okay, what's our counter in these situations? Right. Um, and they're just not consistent enough in hitting those deep balls or doing different things um, to be able to throw some variety at at, de- at defenses. I, I mean, we get asked, we've been asked at times during the season, what would you do if you were the defensive coordinator against Notre Dame? And <laughs> I would point at Stanford's uh, um, a game plan and say, that is what I would do if I was, if I was asked to ask Notre Dame's, Asked to stop Notre Dame's offense, and um, and, it and that's worked. what they're going to see moving forward, right? Until they, yeah, have and an anyone that does anything differently is <laughs> is worse than what you think of Notre Dame's coaching staff right now. <laughs> if someone does that against Notre Dame's offense, and and you know UNLV can execute that, but then you get into Syracuse and Clemson that are going to be doing it with much better personnel, right? All right, next question from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie, who was is not holding back this week. Yeah. Tommy Reese may be a football genius, but he has no common sense. There was an 11-game-in-a-row blueprint of how to destroy Stanford, which he completely disregarded. How does a defensive-minded head coach get him back under control and on track just to try and salvage the season? You know, when I read her question first, I saw the Reese right up next to her email address, and I thought she had added Reese to her email address <laughs> that she was uh, that mad about the situation. But I know Marie is a big football fan. Um, in terms of what what they need to do, I mean, I think it has to be a group effort um, in getting back under control and and salvaging the season. I don't think it's just one coordinator or one side of the ball I think Marcus does have some pretty good position coaches I think they just really need to put their heads together and they also have to have again a better game day operation and the the example I'll use and I was I was um, pleasantly surprised at how candid Marcus was about this with the failed fourth down and two jet sweep with Jaden Thomas, Tommy Reese did say right before the play, oops, this isn't the look that we were looking for. And Marcus said, you know, I should have called a timeout. 
he didn't. He said, ah, let's just put our foot on the gas and run it. Uh, and they run into a very bad defensive look, get zero points, zero yards. Now that's something Marcus needs to learn from. And if he doesn't do that the next time, then that was a good investment. If we get the same kind of um, same kind of lack of veto there, or 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 at least calling a timeout, then then I think that was a wasted opportunity. Yeah, um, I, I guess to to sort of the pointed question, uh, getting Tommy Reese back under control just to like I I don't think for all of Tommy Reese's faults as an office coordinator, I don't think he has a lack of caring. I mean, he wears this disappointment too. He wants Notre Dame to win. So I don't think like um, Tommy Reese is going to be stubborn to the point of wanting to do his things, things his way for the sake of not trying to get Notre Dame better. Um, I'm what, what, what I'm not sure of is just like what, level of critical analysis is Marcus Freeman providing of the offense um because I I think it's clear and Marcus says like hey I had a lot of questions watching the game by myself and then I sort of get some answers later when I talk to the offensive staff or talk to the defensive staff so I I think he and he's pretty frank about it he doesn't feel like he's on the same level of expertise as Tommy Reese as an offensive coach um so I think he's asking a lot of questions, but is he providing solutions? So I, I don't know to what extent Marcus can like change what Tommy Reese wants to do. I mean, like he can sort of tell him, Hey, run the ball. Like, I just don't know what level Marcus is getting his hands into like tweaking the offense or making sure that Tommy is doing things this way or that way. Um, so I'm not really sure what the answer is there. Next question is from Eric Holobin at eholobin24. Does it also appear to this group that our O&D coordinators are trying to show how complex and creative their game plans are just to get to the NFL or land a head coaching job? The game plans are clearly not written for their personnel right now. Well, that second line there turns your first question into uh, almost a rhetorical question here. <laughs> and by the way, your parents had very good taste. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't think that's it at all. I, I think that um, the complexity of the defense probably has to do with the fact that Al Golden's been in the NFL for a while. This is what he's familiar with and that he knows. And I do think that he, I, I do like Al Golden's approach. I do think that he is learning the roster better and and he is making adjustments to that. I mean, he's the first guy that admitted to admit a mistake when he's talking to the uh, press. We had, um, it was the uh, safety blitz against BYU, and he said, that's on me. That was a bad call. And I put, uh, I think it might have been Jaden Mickey yes. in a bad position. And so, again, he's kind of relearning the college game. It had been a while since he had been around it. So I don't think he's just flashing you know, the, these concepts to, to promote himself. I don't think Tommy Reese is either. I, I think he studies and decides what he thinks is the best for, uh, for the team and so forth. And, you know, maybe with a wide receiver core, that's not as strong as a lot of teams around the country, he feels that he needs to be a little bit more creative. So I don't think either one of them is, 
is has an ulterior motive in how they put together their game plans. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's the specific to the offense, like Notre Dame was doing things against North Carolina that was way more creative than what it did against Stanford. Um, and I thought the previous two games against North Carolina and BYU were tailored to Andy's skill set. And then all of a sudden it seemed to sort of go away against Stanford. That that's what I don't understand. And I, Maybe we – I don't know if we'll get any more insight to that when we talk to Tommy Reese Tuesday night. But it's just like, okay, why, why why, did they wait so long to get Audrick Estime and Logan Diggs involved in the offense? Like, why why were they why were they unable to sort of replicate some of the success that they had in previous games? And it seemed like, to some extent, they didn't even try to replicate the some of the plays that they were running, particularly like two running back sets. I think they ran three plays and two running back sets. And it's like – this has clearly been successful for you. What did you abandon that? Cause you wanted to get Mitch Evans on the field so badly. Like I, I and it, it wasn't even that they ran mostly out of 11 personnel. And it's like, well, why th- your wide receiver issue is well-documented. Why, why is there an assistant on needing to play three wide receivers at all times? Now, maybe they felt like that's what we have to do to spread out Stanford's defense, but it didn't seem to work and they didn't take advantage of it. So I don't really know. It's, it's, it's sort of baffling to me. So I, I I mean, sort of like what you were getting at, like how the second half of this question, like, like you're not going to get a better job if you if you're not you're not proving that you can game plan for the personnel that you have because you're going to have to do that wherever you're at. Um, so, if if they're if they're auditioning for better jobs, they're they're not necessarily winning them. I I, I don't have as harsh of criticism for Al Golden. I I know there are plenty of issues with the defense and there are especially like some statistical things. It's like, wow, that's really how bad they are. But they are for the most part, like they held Stanford to 16 points like that. Yes. It wasn't a great game. The defense didn't look good, but they still held Stanford to 16 points. That's, that's a, that's a good, that's a good outing on the, on the whole, like that's the goal. Don't let them score. Um, I know, I know like there's a lot of things that go into that, but um, it's, and they did that with, Notre Dame's offense not necessarily helping them out a ton in terms of in terms of putting them in good situations. So um, or, or limiting plays. That right. Stanford ran eighty three offensive plays. So, so yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe maybe st- so Stanford I guess was probably Stanford. What Stanford did was what Notre Dame was hoping to do against Ohio State. I guess um, sort of. I guess you could probably put it that way. Like control the ball, score just enough points, keep out keep it away from Notre Dame's offense, and and it worked this time. So. Um, I, I, the, and to me, like it, maybe it's an excuse, but it would make more sense if Al Golden needs time to sort of figure out how to do this back at the college level. Um, than Tommy Reese, who's been in this position at this same program for, for a few years now. So there, there shouldn't need to be some sort of adjustment period there. So, um, they, they have, they have done something. I mean, I know we get to the execution thing and that's what their next question is. So I won't step on that too much, but they are there are times where Notre Dame is, is making good play calls and putting right the right people in the right situations. And they're just not, not coming through. So it's not all on the coaching, but it is um, heavily on the coaching. So, so the next question, like I mentioned is from at CFB independence. Does it really come down to execution? You know, I've noticed that um, account. And I think the person that runs it has a pretty good sense of humor. So I'm not sure that this is, a particularly straight question, uh, but I'll I'll kind of answer it as if it were, I, you know, and I wrote about this 
in my column Saturday night into Sunday morning, and that was, it's not about whether it comes down to execution, it's the why. You know, why aren't they executing? We know that they're not right. executing. We, we've we heard it um, at various times for the last six games. Uh, the, the question is why? Is it players? Is it coaching? Is it a combination of both? And I, and I think it is. And, and so that goes into game planning that goes into um, everything, including, um, you know, pregame, what you're doing in pregame, what you're doing during the week. Uh, so it, it shows up in execution. Um, not all of it can be blamed on the players and not all of it can be blamed on the coaches and definitely none of it could be blamed on the media. Is this where I'm supposed to say execution? I'm in favor of it. Is that is that what we're being set up? Yeah, I mean, oh man, <laughs> uh, certainly a lot of it does come down to execution. But yeah, like you mentioned, the, the the why is what matters, and I think just sort of describing things as execution issues is a sort of crutch that coaches use to try to avoid pointing the finger um, too directly and, and offending people. Um, so. Me personally, like, I think I don't have a problem saying that players have to make plays. Now, like, that's what they're they're here to do. They hold themselves to a high standard, so we should be we should we can hold them to a high standard too. Now, the the anger that is given behind it uh, from certain certain people, I think, is unreasonable and not necessary. But yeah, I mean, there are plays out there that players have to execute, whether it's. Um, Chris Tyree lining up on the right in the right position, so Michael Mayer's touchdown doesn't get taken off the board. It's Drew Pine making a fairly easy throw to Braden Lindsay that should have been a touchdown. Um, there are there are times where the players are put in the right position. They've likely been coached this situation before, and they just mess up. The, I mean, we're all we're all human. We mess up. Like we don't live up to the expectations. Not all my sentences are grammatically correct. There are many that probably aren't. Uh, we we all mess up. So I think it's fine to to speaking of mess up. Last night's YouTube show, which, <laughs> there were technical difficulties, and some of them could be traced back to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of them. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I guess despite saying all this, like that doesn't mean the responsibility leaves the coaching staff. The coaching staff has to figure out, okay, who can we put in the right situations? How can we prepare them for the right situations that they can go out there and execute? So it's, I mean, get more cliche than execution. It's a team game. Everyone has to do their job in order to succeed. Um, and not enough people are doing their job for Notre Dame right now for them to have consistent success. Next question is from Chino at D underscore radio guy. What is one criticism of this team slash staff that you feel is inaccurate? And what is one criticism that you feel is warranted? I think the inaccurate one is that Marcus Freeman didn't deserve a shot at this job, that they should have bypassed anybody without head coaching experience. I think the circumstances that led to his hiring uh, including who was available, who else was available and who was not and how long you'd have to wait. I do think that to, to judge that on six games is way too early. So I don't think that's warranted. Let's just see uh, a couple of years from now where we're, we're at with that question. What is warranted is that there are growing pains with this coaching staff. We've seen them week to week, even in victories. 
And I, I think that's the one that I would make that criticism myself. Yeah. The, inaccurate criticism that i had is is actually a little bit of an argument that i've been getting into on our message board the insider lounge is that marcus freeman isn't fit to be a head coach because he's a player's coach um i, I listed kirby smart dabo sweeney pete carroll those are all players coaches um i i was i was trying to google who's called players coach but it's hard because those are two like generic phrases that get used for all kinds of reasons <laughs> but not necessarily together so uh barry switzer was described as a, a as a player's coach now that's a different generation even when uh that would be i i don't i don't have a lot of perspective on barry switzer as a coach but um I, that would be a uh probably wasn't as welcomed being a player's coach in that that era that more people coaches were probably more strict and that was probably seen as um different back then uh maybe eric can correct me there but i just think that's he way- wasn't a player's coach woody hayes <laughs> yeah I, I just think it's way too simple-minded to assume that because players like marcus freeman that he can't reprimand them i i I interviewed Marcus Freeman um, the first summer that he was at Notre Dame when he was the defensive coordinator. And he talked about how his high school coach was a a yeller. He'd get in your face, he'd grab your face mask and he wanted to be coached hard and he wants to coach his players hard. Now he doesn't necessarily do that in the same way, but I don't, I I just don't believe that Notre Dame's going out there and not executing because they like Marcus Freeman a lot and that he's not going to hold them accountable. I just don't think that, that just doesn't have any basis in reality from my point of view. Um, and that those two things can work together. Um, and I like, I just think players coaches use it as an insult only when you're losing, but when you're winning players, coaches, a compliment. So, um, well, I, I just think that that line of criticism doesn't, doesn't hold weight to me. When you're winning and when you're losing, people will see the same quality as positive or negative. Uh, uh, I remember Tyrone Willingham, when he came in, he was very calm on the sidelines. And when they had that big winning streak to start his first season, people were like, look at that. You know, he's he's not losing his cool. He's like Buddha on the sidelines. He's the very cerebral, and this is helping the team. And then, you know, the next year when things weren't so good, it was, you know, he needs to light a fire under these guys. And he's thinking about his last golf score and he's on the golf course too much so you know the same quality whether you're winning or losing is is how people are going to perceive it so you I think the best thing is to be yourself and that's what Marcus Freeman's doing yeah and then as for the warranted thing it's sort of in line with what you're saying I just Tommy Reese needs to be better and fast I think he he has ownership in Notre Dame's quarterback room and wide receiver room not having enough talent or not executing in a way to make this offense consistently successful so he can't like an effort like the Stanford game is is I think borderline inexcusable I don't I don't I I mean that might that might be the worst game he's called of his career I don't know I I think I I would have to go back and figure out how how you would measure that but it it was it was bad um and uh Notre Dame Notre Dame needs needs more from him uh next question is from Kyle Miller at KJ Millitime Usually the easy go-to response when a team is struggling is giving reps to younger guys, whether it's reevaluating the roster or for the reps. Specifically with this team and the struggles, do you think it's more of a, the coaching slash game plan or player talent? I think it's – there's elements of both. I think it's the coaching slash game plan and the, and the newness of the staff and, you know, the growing pains of 
you know, what, what they have. But I also think that there's some things with her. This is a pretty talented roster. Uh, when you think about the NFL type players that are on it, you had four preseason all Americans. Um, but there are holes at certain position. The quarterback position isn't what it is at a lot of other schools. The wide receiver position isn't what it is at a lot of other schools. When when that those are two really important elements in in competing in today's football, and I would say to a certain extent, the cornerback position has not been as good as it needs to be. So people are taking advantage of those holes in Notre Dame's roster. But there are some really good players on this roster, including you know offensive linemen and All American tight end, some really good defensive back or I'm sorry, defensive linemen. Um, some decent safety so that's how I see it yeah it, to me it's not the talent because ND is more talented than Marshall and Stanford I, I don't know that there's a coach an argument against that like that Notre Dame had more talent on the field than those teams did and that didn't matter um that talent isn't reaching its potential on a weekly basis um so now some of that fault blame lies with the players um, but that lies with the the coaching staff and the game plan and how they're being used as well. Um, Lorenzo Styles is is an extremely talented player. Yep. He has not he has not met that expe- those expectations or potential. And I don't think that's like us getting out ahead of our skis about Lorenzo Styles. I just think that whatever is being done, I don't. He just. I mean, there were a couple of situations against Stanford. It's like Lorenzo just has to make that play, doesn't he? Like this is he's supposed to be their number one receiver and he's not making that play. I know like the one in the end zone, like his arm was getting grabbed. So, so that prevented him from catching it, but some, he's been in some situations where it's like, this is, this is what we need you to do and you need to do it, but it can, does Notre Dame need to get him the ball more? So he has better confidence and he's in a better position to do that when asked to make a big play in a big situation. Um, I don't really know uh, what the answer to that is, but that's that's for the coaching staff to figure out. So um, the coaching staff has to take ownership of it. So I, I lean towards the coaching staff while admitting that the players, um, going back to the execution, they have to go out there and do what they're being taught to do. Um, and that's not always happening either. Uh, next question is from uh, at Mike Devoy one. The D-line doesn't seem to be getting pressure on the quarterback like they did last year. Change of scheme, change of position coach, something else. And all three of those last sentences were with question marks. Um, I think some of it is change in scheme. I think some of it is Notre Dame does not have, has not come up with a good counter to when a team does the kind of quick game on them to to kind of force teams to uh, maybe go back to more of a traditional drop back and, where you can rush the passer. Marshall did that. They got their ball, the ball out to the perimeter to their wide receivers and let them run. And they did that with fairly good regularity. They did it on third down. Um, Notre Dame didn't account for the quarterback runs against um, Marshall. And then you saw that with Stanford. I mean, that was a really bad offensive line that had two players missing from it because of injury. Um, they were one of the worst teams in protecting their quarterback. I also think in those two games, because Marshall and Stanford were able to play with the lead, they weren't in a position where they had to show their hand whether they were going to run or pass. They could stay balanced and and not be in obvious passing situations very often. And I think uh, that also plays into it. 
Yeah, and Stanford ran the ball a lot and does the the slow mesh, so it's hard to figure out, okay, am I actually rushing the passer here or do I need to be yeah. tackling the quarterback or tackling the running back? Um, but all that being said, do you know how many sacks Notre Dame had through six games last year? I'm not sure, but I th- I know they have 15 this year and they ended up with a school record um, that was in the 40s, wasn't it? Um, I don't remember what the total was. I only looked through six games. I think they have 16 through th- right now, unless I misread that. But they had 16 last year through six games too. So the the aggregate isn't isn't different. Um, they, now they have, according to this, as of October. Oh, this is last week's stats that are yeah, and they had and that they are had on their website. That's what they posted. <laughs> so it was 15. So it's now 16. You're right. Right. Gosh, so, that's great. So so they're still averaging the same amount of sacks that they were last season. Now right now they're ranked 27th in the country, which I know it's not, it doesn't make it doesn't seem like that. Like I, I'm not disagreeing with Mike that it feels like this the, the Notre Dame defense isn't creating the same amount of pressure. Um but I just wanted to throw that in like we I think sometimes we lose that perspective of like what the reality is in terms of the the actual numbers and Notre Dame is in the same exact position and it's actually ranked a little bit higher based on the rest of the country. Um the 2.67 average at this point last year was 34th in the country is 27th now. Um, but I think Notre Dame is, is really reliant on that sack production to win games. And it's not as consistent as it needs to be. Only five of those sacks have come in Notre Dame's three losses. So there is some correlation there between Notre Dame's inability to win some of these games and its ability to get to the quarterback. So um, I'm not saying they, that they the had de- 41 at the end of the season last year. Right, so so they they're on pace to to match that. I I don't know that that's necessarily going to happen or what. I mean, they I think the the better portion of their schedule is is coming out. I think they'll be facing tougher teams. Um, although some of those te- some of the teams they will face aren't uh, that aren't tough uh, may give up a lot of sacks, but um, and I think I, Notre Dame probably uh sort of padded its stat to- sack total towards the end of last season as well. But anyways. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Notre Dame isn't necessarily Isaiah Foskey isn't being as productive as we expected him to be. Um, they've, they've had injury issues up front that I think have really cost them. Um, Jason Adamalola certainly against Stanford. He is a very good pass rusher from the inside. Howard Cross is a pretty good pass rusher from the inside. He played some, but I don't think he's, um, at his best right now. Um, so Notre, Notre Dame needs to do better. I, I do agree with that, but I don't think that they're uh, maybe as poor as, as the question was, was suggesting. Next question is from at Mr. Joe Seiler. I don't know football at all, but I have a red zone idea. Have Eli Raritan run midway into the end zone, turn his back to the court, turn back to the quarterback and jump Has drew pine throw have drew pine, throw a ball 10 feet in the air. And nearish the sideline. Neither Eli gets it or no one does, right? Seems like a gimme TD. Yeah, I don't hate that concept. The thing is, if it always worked, everybody would do it because everybody has, you know, tall receivers and tall tight ends. And and so there's cornerbacks and safeties that can jump up and knock that down or intercept it. Um now, if you had a quarterback that could throw it where only that that receiver could get to it, you know, then that makes it that much more effective. But I don't know that Drew Pine is that guy that has that precision. Um, precision. So I again, I don't hate the the 
thing. I think what you have to do, though, is you have to be a little bit unpredictable. You have something like that in your arsenal. And I think we will see Eli Reardon running those plays next year. Um, but, uh, you know, you if, if the defense knows it's coming, they will have a plan to try to stop that. If, yeah. if that's what you're doing. Right. But they, but their plan first has to be to stop Michael Mayer. And so I think that's the idea. It's like, Hey, if we have other tight ends that can do this, can't we get, can we use a different one to do something similar while using Michael Mayer as a, as a decoy? Sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, I said, I didn't hate the idea. Right. right. And, and you could throw um, Tobias Merriweather in there too, and have right. six, five, six, five, six, seven, you know, and, that's an interesting i'd I'd like to see that you know stanford every one of their wide receivers was six foot two or taller or at least the top five guys coming into the game with reception so they had tall tight ends and they had tall receivers and uh so we didn't get to see a lot of them in the red zone uh because they you know were kicking field goals but uh you know they certainly we've seen that with stanford in the past where they've had uh, where they kind of muscled you with their tight ends and and their tall tight ends with with the more vintage Stanford teams that they've done similar things to that. So again, I don't hate the idea. Yeah, I'm I'm for it. I, I've been advocating to using the other tight ends um in the passing game a little bit more. Um because because speaking of the predictability, I think I don't I don't know how how much opposing defenses are worried about those multiple tight ends when they get on the field because they're not really using them as as passing targets that much so far this season. Uh, next question is from at Henry B. Now that Tobias Merriweather has passed the, how many touchdowns does Jordan have at UCF stage of his career? What is next? Right. And, and the answer is zero for Jordan Johnson, both in touchdowns and catches. But I think what's next for Tobias is that he continues to have a limited role, but that they, use that limited role more and maybe expand it a little bit more to a few more plays. I, I like Tobias, what he brings to the table. Uh, we're going to have a chance to talk to him Tuesday night. So it'll be interesting to get his thoughts on why, you know, how he's handled not playing, why he feels like he's getting a chance now. Uh, but I, I don't think he's going to be a one hit wonder and that we won't see him the rest of the season. I think this is the beginning of what you're going to get from Tobias but I don't expect him to be a starter either. I think he's going to have, he's going to be a rotational player that's going to help. Yeah, I, 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 we're not going to see him like getting sixty snaps anytime soon. I don't think, um, unless unless he continues to make plays at this level and they can continue to expand his role. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to be involved more. The Notre Dame needs to use him more. Um, if you lacked confidence in him, I think uh, when you throw a go ahead, touchdown to him in the fourth quarter. That should probably increase your confidence in him. Um, I think there can be a problem if he's only doing one or two things. Um, and there's a predictable predictability to what he's being asked to do. Um, but th I mean, that can't be the only route that Tobias Merriweather can run well. So I think they they have to find ways to use him more um, and get him involved in the offense if they're comfortable with him knowing what he needs to do and going out there and uh, not putting the quarterback in a bad situation by not running the route he's supposed to, or something like that. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Pine doesn't look like the long-term answer and 
Tyler Buckner is still a question mark because we only saw him tar- start two games behind a horrible offensive line. With that in mind, it gives impression next year may be similar to this year since the quarterback is so essential to success and ND looks to be back at square one. Thoughts, question mark. Well, my thoughts are Notre Dame needs to kind of let this play out. I, I said it last week when <laughs> Drew Pine was 17th in the country in pass efficiency and seventh in completion percentage. Let's let's let the whole season play out and see what they have, see how Tyler Buckner's recovery is going. You know, uh, one of the reasons that Notre Dame really was willing to look at Jack Cohn and go after him was because Brendan Clark's knee was degenerating and it wasn't getting better. And so if, uh, if Tyler Buckner's healing isn't going well, that helps you in an informed decision. So here's what I'm, here's kind of my scorecard on the quarterback situation. You have uh, basically Buckner, Pine, and Jelly, a 2023 recruit that you're trying to get. You have CJ Carr possibly reclassifying, and you have the portal. Pick two. You have to have two strong options. So pick two out of that bunch. Those are my thoughts. How about you, Tyler? Yeah. I, I mean, I understand the concern it is certainly fair, but like you mentioned, we, we wouldn't have, I mean, the questions weren't as obvious just a week ago. So I, I don't really know what to think of Notre Dame's quarterback situation. We don't have to know right now what next year's situation will be. Notre Dame needs to figure it out by season's end and uh, have an idea if it can go into next season with Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner as the top two options. Um, there's a good chance. If that does happen, that you as a Notre Dame fan might not be terribly confident in it. I'm not sure that there's anything that can really be done to change that. Um, now, maybe Drew Pine finishes the season incredibly well, has big games and beats Clemson and beats USC, and you're like, okay, we're on board the Drew Pine train for real this time. Let's 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 let him start next season. But I don't know how how that I would put a great percentage on that being the reality of how the rest of the season plays out. But I mean, we, we can't, we can't just assume how it's going to play out. And um, that, I mean, that's why I like Notre Dame always needed to recruit a 2023 quarterback um, and, and why it's still so lo- looming large that they haven't been able to do that. It's, it's not, it's not an issue that's going away. Um, and Notre Dame has to figure that out. Next question is from at Summer John. What should ND be doing now to salvage the recruiting class for next year? I would say they have in terms of who they pursue, who they try to get on campus, you know, aim high like they have been. I think they need to be aggressive in their messaging. Um, what does this three and three start mean? How do you spin that into something that's positive for the future? And And teams do that all the time. And then be aggressive in their communication with the players that are already in their class and the players that they're trying to get. And in terms of, you know, that's one of the reasons Notre Dame has the number two recruiting class in the country right now is because of that constant communication that Marcus Freeman continues to be in touch with these recruits and it impresses them. It makes them feel wanted and they do like the messaging that they're getting from Notre Dame. Um, and, and I'll point out a couple things. One is, one of the best recruiting classes in the 2000s came uh, 
it was the 2008 recruiting class. So it was happening during the 2007 season. And that group was Dane Chris, uh, Michael Floyd, Kyle Rudolph. There, it was a pretty star-studded group. There were 14 players from that team that were invited to the U.S. Army All-American Bowl. So that tells you the level of, of talent that was in that group. And then the other one is um, when Notre Dame went 4-8 and eight under Brian Kelly in 2016, that class lost, I believe, six players to other classes, but they were able to grab some people at the end, including Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, who ended up being an All-American. And that group, as seniors, were the foundation for the 2020 playoff team. So just because you're having a bad year on the field doesn't mean it's going to be a bad year as far as a talent haul, but it does mean you have to work really hard to spin your message about the future. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, certainly Notre Dame needs to maintain what it has. It has a good class. Um, it has one of the best class in the country as, as of now. Um, now that is expected to change as other classes continue to fill out. So Notre Dame needs to make sure that it's keeps those guys on board. Um, and, and the messaging to them is pretty simple. I think it's a pretty basic blueprint. We, you, you, Mr. Recruit, you're the change we need in the program. We need you to get better. You can impact this right away. I mean, it's, it's sort of basic recruiting. Um, now I think it could be more difficult to sort of, have that message hit home when there are dollars being thrown around for other other for recruits across the country. Um, it may be harder to sort of buy into that when you're sort of getting a similar pitch with money on top of that. But that that's what Notre Dame needs to do. I mean, as of now, like the quarterback situation is bad. Losing Keon Keeley is bad. Otherwise, Notre Dame's done a pretty good job in terms of the recruiting cycle as a whole in terms of what it's put together what it's maintained um so i think this class is good i mean keeping it together is the important part and it seems like kids are saying the right thing so far um about what they what they see in notre dame and for the most part their their confidence isn't necessarily shaken in what marcus freeman can do for this program in notre dame all right last question is from at charles w wolf with a six-game sample size, it just seems like something is off when playing at home. I apologize if this seems like grasping at straws, but is it possible that the pregame pep rallies are a distraction? As crazy as this sounds, do we beat Marshall and Stanford at in an away game or at a neutral site? Well, I mean, that question came up in the press conference Monday. It came up in the press conference Saturday. Tim Priester uh, re-asked the question Monday because he wanted a different answer, and he did get a different answer, and Marcus Freeman is certainly willing to work, uh, look at that, and, and and take a look and to see if there are too many home game distractions. Look, Brian Kelly uh, put a lot of research into that, and he ended up de-emphasizing and skinnying down a lot of the stuff that was happening at home games because he felt like it was a detriment. It's one of the reasons they didn't do the long player walk. They didn't do the pregame mass. They shortened that, and and he got criticized for it. Um, and they de-emphasized the pep rallies. And then they they had two years of not having them because of the pandemic, and I think that was a blessing in his mind in disguise that they didn't have to do that. You know, Charlie Weiss, those pep rallies were a huge production. He would get great speakers, and they'd have 
be very well attended. They're actually pretty darn entertaining. Uh, but I, I think Marcus does have to look at that and, and and continue to look at the whys. And I do think maybe there are too much, you know, especially with they're, they're doing the walk and then they stop halfway and they have some kind of you know speech. You know, Marcus gave a speech, Manti Teo gave a speech. And, and, you know, again, maybe that's, that's something that you got to look at. That's not going to be real popular, but um, I, I think that you have something there. I think that's something that they have to look at. Um, if, if you're, you have a small sample size, but you've played better teams on the road and played better in those games. Yeah. I don't think it's crazy to ask. I understand the question. I, yeah, I, <sighs> I have a hard time believing that has any weight in what is actually happening on the field. Um, and if it does, like you're doing a horrible job of coaching your team during the week. If, if something like uh, how they spend an hour on Saturday um, is impacting the play on uh, the field. I, I saw, I, I, I don't, I mean, obviously what Brian Kelly decided to do worked for Brian Kelly. Um, so whether or not that was the reason it were not, I don't know how to necessarily like, assign blame or credit for for that situation so i think he he did a lot of research that doesn't say it it, marcus freeman should use that research that doesn't mean it will work for marcus right but i mean brian kelly angered fans i mean he said we've got to have field turf we've got to have a jumbotron we've got to have music pumped in and honestly then they i mean they had better teams later in in his tenure but they ended up being a really difficult team to play at home right? Um, where they ne- weren't necessarily that. So the science and the correlation there, I don't know. It's maybe more art than science, but it was something that he researched. It was something that he felt. And they even used to practice in the stadium on Thursdays because he felt like Notre Dame stadium came off as this museum and he wanted the players to feel like it was home. So I mean, that certainly was Brian Kelly's methodology, and he felt like it made a difference, you know, whether it did or not, you know, I don't know, maybe it was shaking the magic eight ball, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, or is it, is it affecting the players or the coaches more? Like, I don't, I don't know. And I, I think the one thing Marcus did seem to be willing to question is like how Notre Dame's coaches are handling game days in terms of what the, the amount yeah. of time they're spending with recruiting and stuff like that. Um, so I mean, I guess like, if we think everything's going wrong because Notre Dame's coaching staff isn't doing a good job, do we really think the coaches are being impacted by, by the, the last hour of the week before they go into the stadium? So I I don't really know. Um, I'm not saying this isn't a fair question. I, so I, I just, um, I, I just have no really, no way of measuring what that impact is, um, and it's up to Marcus Freeman to figure it out. And and maybe he gets a better sense for the more times he goes through it, what, what we need to do um, to make, make that work for us. But um, something isn't working that, that seems clear, but is, if it's as simple as a pregame pep rally or going to mass before, before the game, I, I mean, Notre Dame has done that before. I mean, Notre Dame has gone to mass before and won games like that wasn't something that was impossible to do previously. So I think, uh, um, that wouldn't be the first place I would look, I guess is probably the best way to um, wrap up my opinion there. I think it's the hot dogs that they eat. <laughs> it's the hot dogs that we eat. It's the hot dogs <laughs> that we eat. 
All right, that's it for today's episode. Maybe they have walking tacos. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 what it is. We we finally figured it out. Call Marcus Freeman right now and let him know. <laughs> All right, that's it for today's episode of Inside Indy, the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review. And share our podcast feed with your lawyer because uh, we know you're doing some irresponsible things lately given Notre Dame's season. So make sure your lawyer is in in your good graces and give him a good podcast recommendation. All right, after we got rid of uh, the echoing in Eric's ears uh, on the Monday Night Live show on YouTube last night, we finished that. And you can still catch the replay of that on the Inside Indy Sports YouTube channel. And on uh, Friday, we'll have our Place Your Bets predictions for the UNLV game. And we'll be back here next week to recap that matchup with the Rebels. Although I'm worried if Notre Dame loses that game, that this entire area might be on fire. But until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs. <laughs>